0: We've been looking at the book of Romans in the morning services, we're going to continue with that this morning, and we're going to begin uh, from Romans 8 verse 1, so it's beginning Romans 8 verse 1, just a, a few verses. And here Paul says, because of all that God has done for us in Christ, he says in verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. And now we thank God together for His Word and ask Him again to just bring that Word in convicting power into our hearts and lives. Air travel, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, I'm actually scared of heights. But most of the time when I'm on a plane, I seem to be able to quite comfortably suspend logical, rational thought. Some people can say I can do that quite often, but anyway. But to be able, you know, sitting up there to imagine myself, I must, in in a room of some kind, and, and to forget that there's actually only a thin sheet of metal that's separating me from nothing but thousands of feet of air beneath me. But when you, you, you just start thinking about along these lines, well, you then begin to think of how incredible air travel actually is. You know, a huge lump of metal filled with hundreds, and it might even now be thousands of people. And when you look at an airplane sitting on the ground, it sometimes seems impossible to think of that being able to get up into the sky and fly. You know, the the law of gravity that holds us onto the earth seems to to argue against this, seems to, to somehow guarantee that this just cannot happen. I mean, can you imagine how many people it would take to lift a jumbo jet even an inch from the ground. But then you see, you have the tremendous power of jet engines. And the air begins to, to stream across an airplane's wings. And so another law then comes into play, the law of aerodynamics. And before you know where you are, the impossible has happened. The law of gravity has been overcome, and you're up, up in the sky. Now, if as a result of that description of the miracle of flight, anyone here wants to sell tickets to exotic destinations cheap, then I'm your man. I'm willing to make you a very reasonable offer. But let's just take this, this picture of flight a little bit further. Can you imagine yourself flying? Can you imagine yourself doing a superman or a superwoman and flying unaided through the sky? It's a thought, isn't it? Well, basically, in Romans chapter 8, that's what Paul is telling us. He's telling us that in Christ, we can fly. Spiritually, morally, we can fly. Before we come to Christ before we put our faith in Christ it's like we're wearing a heavy heavy metal jacket and it's a jacket of our sin our guilt our failure and shame something that keeps us bound to this earth barely able to move let alone to fly but then God acts in Christ And he removes that jacket of sin, guilt, failure, and shame. And he sets us free. Free to live life as he's always intended it to be lived. He sets us free to fly. As Paul says here in verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. With that word, therefore, in this verse, really acting as a bridge, connecting, linking what Paul has said in the earlier chapters of Romans with what he's here going to go on to say in Romans 8. So what he's stressed in the earlier chapters of Romans is, is basically, particularly in, verse, in chapters 3, 4, and 5, what he's stressed is that the way into the Christian life is justification by faith. It's as we put our faith in Christ that we are saved, that we find salvation. But what he's going to go on to open up now and develop in the the rest of Romans 8 is that the way that this works its way out in our lives, that the only way this life can truly be lived is as we live out our Christian life yielded to And so filled with the Spirit of Christ. And that's vital. Yielded to. And because we're yielded, filled with the Spirit of Jesus. John Stott, he says here that the Christian life is essentially life in the Spirit. That is to say a life which is animated, sustained, directed, and enriched by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, true Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, indeed impossible. Now here at this point, before we move on to explore what Paul says here in more depth, before that, I I believe there are one or two things that emerge from this that that we need to make sure that we're clear about, need to make sure that we've grasped, got hold of. First, that this is what Paul expects to be the spiritual experience of all Christians. True Christian living is essentially life in the Spirit. There is no other way of living an authentic Christian life other than in and by the Holy Spirit. So as I'm sure I've said to you before, the idea that we receive Christ at conversion and that then at some later stage we receive the Spirit as we are baptized in the Spirit, this isn't a view that I personally am comfortable with. And the passages in acts, etc., that are sometimes used in support of this, well, for me, far from setting out some two-stage experience that's intended to be the experience of every Christian. Rather, I believe that these passages in acts, that they were recorded because they were unique experiences of the early church. Samaritan Pentecost, Gentile Pentecost, marking when the Spirit came to the Gentiles and Samaritans, etc. But Paul's fundamental position found a little later here in Romans 8, at the heart of this great statement of his theology, not just a one-off experience, but his fundamental theology in this great teaching letter is Romans 8 verse 9, where he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. However, although I do believe that all Christians do receive the Spirit at conversion and should then go on to live their Christian life in the Spirit. Yet, I don't believe that all of this actually is the case for every Christian. Far from it. You see, I don't believe that every Christian does live their life yielded to the Spirit, surrender to the Spirit with an expectancy, a desire to be filled with the Spirit in a continuous, ongoing and developing, growing way where we'll then have many experiences of the Spirit, both great and small. No, rather, we have such low expectations sometimes of the spiritual life. It's about salvation in Christ And then heaven to come with very, very little in between. Too many Christians then actually live their Christian lives like spiritual penguins. We were made to fly, but we've forgotten how to fly. However, as I hope you'll see, as I intend to try and make clear to you, this I believe, is not how God intends our spiritual life to be. Let's all begin to open this up a little bit here by looking first at what does it rest on? What does it rest on? This ministry, this life-transforming experience of the Holy Spirit that God intends to be our spiritual birthright. Everyone who knows Jesus. Verse 2 tells us that through Christ Jesus... The law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Now, the law of sin and death in the context of of what Paul has just said in Romans chapter 7 is quite obviously the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law, which is not in itself sinful. Not at all but rather which leads to sin, which provokes and reveals sin when it comes into contact with our sinful, fallen human nature. Verse 3, it talks of what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. So because of our sin, When we are living under the law, all that leads to is condemnation. We are condemned by the law. We stand condemned before God because all the law does is bring out into the open again and again our disobedience, our rebellion, our weakness, failure, and shame. That is where every one of us once stood condemned. By the law of sin and death. But then Paul tells us that through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free. That is, sets us free, sets all who put their trust in Christ free. So, what is the law of the Spirit of life? Well, if we set this, as I believe we should, in the context of of what Paul goes on to say in the following verses, that it would seem that this must be referring to the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel. This is the law that sets us free. The good news of God's salvation offered up to all who put their trust in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the law of the spirit of life that through Christ sets us free. And it's this gospel that Paul then unfolds to us in the following two verses in phrases that are just packed with spiritual meaning and significance, telling us first that God sent His own Son. That is the gospel. Do you grasp what that's saying? Do you, do you get it? The uniqueness, the sense of intimacy that these words are chosen in order to convey that Jesus is God's Son in a way that no other is or can be, in that He Himself is God in the flesh, and that He then enjoys a perfect, eternal relationship with the Father and a degree of intimacy with the Father that is way beyond our human understanding, the love that is known between the Father and the Son. I mean, We all know something of what love is as as human beings. And we all know couples who've been to us, wonderful examples of a loving relationship. And we've all heard incredible stories of love. Certainly, I read one not that long ago that stood out for me. And it was the story of two people who were rescued off the coast of Queensland in Australia from an overturned boat. And the rescuers were astounded when they heard their story. because You see, there were, there were three of them in that boat when it overturned. But soon after it happened, sharks began circling around them. And one of the men, in order to save his girlfriend, swam off and lured the sharks away. He was never found. I don't know about you, but for me, there are certain people that I'd like to believe I would be willing to die for. But would I be willing to die in that way? When we once went on holiday to Florida, I would hardly go into the water above my knees. And even then, I spent most of my time looking around on guard for imminent sharp attack. I've got to say to you, that film, Jaws, took away the joy of warm water bathing for me for all time. I just hear the music every time I'm in. I'm looking for it coming to get me. But you know, when this story was first released on press and TV, people found it very difficult to believe that someone could love another human being so much that they would be willing to make this kind of sacrifice for them. And yet, you know, even this love, even this kind of quality of relationship, depth of intimacy, even this pales into insignificance in comparison to the love that binds the Father and the Son together. And yet, the Father was willing to send the Son from heaven to earth. The Son was willing to come because of our situation and because of the greatness of their love for us. The next aspect of the gospel that Paul lays open before us is that God's sending of the Son for us involved Him becoming a man, taking on human flesh. As it says here, God sent His own Son in the likeness of human flesh. Now that is, though, quite an unusual phrase that Paul, I believe, chooses here to get across the concept of Christ's humanity. And and, and because he chose to use this phrase, it must have been chosen for a reason. And it would seem that it's, it's designed to communicate, it's designed to get across to us two very important things about Christ's humanity. First, that Christ's humanity was real. That Christ was truly and fully a man. And that's important for there was a false teaching around in early church times that that Christ was God, but that He never really became a man. And what Paul's making clear here is that Jesus Christ entered fully, into our human experience, that Jesus knows literally what it's like to walk in our shoes. He understands the pressures and the tensions, the joys and sorrows that are part and parcel of being a human being. And yet, there is a difference, a vital difference between Christ's humanity and ours, which I believe here Paul is taking great care to ensure that we grasp by his choice of wording. That is that Christ in his humanity came in the likeness of human, or better I believe as the RSV puts it, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And you get it, Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Like that is, but not the same as. Like in that, as we've said, he was as truly and fully human as we are, but different in that his humanity was not fallen and sinful as ours is, but rather was pure, untainted, perfect, and sinless. Then the next next aspect of the gospel that Paul presents us with here is that God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. He came there to be a sacrifice for our sin. But that phrase, sin offering, really clearly reflecting back to, to the Old Testament sin offerings that you can find in places like Leviticus and Numbers. And that is that which was an offering for sin committed unknowingly unwittingly. An offering then, this is what Paul's saying, for sin that covers sin in the very widest sense. Sin committed willfully and deliberately, and yet also sin committed unconsciously, without any thought, forethought. Jesus came then to be the sacrifice for all our sin. And He came knowing that this was his destiny, knowing that this was the calling laid upon him. So in Christ then, verse 3, God condemns sin in sinful man. God did not ignore our sin, did not ignore our willful rebellion. God didn't do that because his justice, his holy righteousness would not, will not allow that, but rather God judged and condemned our sin in Christ, the one who stood in our place, who took our punishment, offering up his sinless humanity as the only acceptable sacrifice for all our sin. So, there is then now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Cranfield, the writer of what many feel is the the best of the innumerable books and commentaries that have been written on Romans, he says here that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no divine condemnation, since the condemnation they deserve has already been fully borne by him. That's the answer then to that first question what does it rest on? This life-transforming experience of the Spirit that God wants for each Christian as our spiritual birthright. Let's move on to to briefly, just briefly answer that second closely connected question. That is, what does it lead to? What does it lead to? For we put our, our faith in Christ and His death for us on the cross. We do that so, what then does this salvation that is now ours, does God intend this to lead on to? I mean, is this it? Is this it? Is the day of our salvation really the end of the road, the high watermark as far as our spiritual experience on this earth is concerned? Is it just a matter of faithfully hanging on as hard as we can to Jesus in this world while we wait to go to heaven, where there our real spiritual life will begin? Now, I'm afraid from what you see of the way many Christians live that this does seem to be the way that they think, that they have that one high watermark day in the day of, in the experience of conversion, that one day, the day that they came to Christ, but from that day, well, they don't seem to have progressed that much further. They don't seem to have known that much more of of the living God at work in their life. I believe that's because they have no real expectation of Him to be at work, and so they've got no real hunger, desire. But that's the way their Christian life has been. And so their Christian experience has been a pretty flat experience. And to their credit, they've maybe shown a fair bit of discipline in their Christian life. They've been around. They've held on. They've been faithful. But you don't sense sometimes that some Christians have been stretched, that they've grown, that they've moved on to new experiences, that they've really known God at work in their lives, that they've known joy in the Lord, that the Christian life has been for them what it should be, a liberating, life-changing, life-transforming experience. Well, again we ask, is that the way that the Christian life should be? I don't believe it is. And certainly, I don't believe that this is what Paul thought either. For look at what he says here, beginning in verse 3 and then running on into verse 4. And so he condemns sin in sinful man, we've covered that, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature. But, according to the Spirit. Now, do you see what that's actually saying? That salvation isn't the end, isn't the destination for the Christian as far as God is concerned, but rather that salvation in many ways is the beginning, is the way in to life in the Spirit. And God expects His people to live a spiritual life where they know His Spirit at work in their lives and where the working of the Spirit of God does lead to life transformation, change attitudes, change values, change passions, change desires, where it does lead to true holiness. See again what it says here. That we were saved in order that the righteous requirements of the law, that is holiness, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. You see, the sinful flesh makes the law impotent. We've already said that. But the Spirit, though, gives us the power to obey it in the context of positive, love-filled, guilt-free lives and Christian living. God intends the Christian life in the life and the power of the Spirit that He gives to be the most liberating, powerful, life-enriching experience imaginable. Sometimes I think that as the church, we've perhaps I've got, got to begin at the place where, where we just say, Lord, forgive us for the way that so often, perhaps unknowingly, but we have parodied the Christian life. And instead of making it appear and seen for what it is, we've instead made it appear to be negative, constrictive, life-denying, And almost loveless, And we've got to ask, God, forgive us. Forgive us, because that's not what it's about. And then we have to pray. Lord, come upon us again. And give us the faith. Give us the expectation, the hunger and desire to live out the kind of spirit-filled Christianity that your will for your people. Is that your heart today? Well, I pray it is because if it is, God will answer your prayer. As you seek to walk in faith, to walk in obedience, as you yield your life and open your life in faith and in expectation to the Spirit of God, God will answer your prayer because that heart is His heart. Let's come now and pray together. Father, we pray that you'll deliver us from the the error of thinking that the Christian life that we've maybe always lived or the Christian life as we've mostly seen it, that that is the way that this Christian life is to be lived. Lord, help us not to be governed by our experience of our own lives or the lives of others, but help us instead to look to your Word and to see what you want for your people, what your expectations are and the resources that you provide to help us to live this life, because it's only in your Spirit, as we are yielded to you and to your Word, it's only by the Spirit of God that we will live that life that pleases you. Father, give us a hunger again for you. Give us humble, expectant hearts. And this we now pray in Jesus' name. Amen.